This episode of the Organic BC podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, this is the Organic BC podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. This episode features part one of my conversation with Manish Raizada. Hello, my name is Manish Raizada. I'm a professor in the Department of Plant Agriculture at the University of Guelph. Manish joined me to talk about both biofertilizers and biopesticides. In this episode, we'll focus on biofertilizers and the role they can play in reducing our food system's dependence on synthetic nitrogen and its undesirable impacts on water quality and climate emissions. I think that's all I need to say for now. I hope you enjoy the conversation and I will talk to you in a little while. Manish Raizada, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for this opportunity. Nice to be here. I've been really looking forward to this conversation, Manish. Today, we're going to be talking about the potential to replace certain synthetic fertilizers with biological substitutes. And so I thought I would ask you to start kind of in a broad sense. Can you can you describe the potential role of biological these biological substitutes um, in, in farming? Sure. So, you know, the, the challenge that uh, that we face in agriculture is that um, most fertilizers are, are mined. They might be chemically modified, but they're mined. The exception is nitrogen. Nitrogen um, is it requires um, a, a high heat to manufacture it, and, and that consumes fossil fuels. The, 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 that, that's weird because um, when you breathe in, most of the air that you're breathing in is actually nitrogen gas. It's not oxygen. The problem is plants can't access that nitrogen gas. However, certain microbes can. And so these microbes, I'll call them biofertilizers, they can convert this atmospheric nitrogen gas into ammonia, essentially fertilizer. Um, and they can do that without heat. Um, they do require an energy source, and, and that ultimately will come from photosynthesis if, if these microbes are applied to plants. And, you know, farmers um, already take advantage of these types of bacteria. We're, Scientists refer to, refer to them as nitrogen-fixing bacteria because they fix it in the plant, particularly farmers who grow any legumes, so soybeans, um, you know, green peas, lentils, etc. Um, in, in these plants, uh, their root systems um, have these underground organs called nodules, and um, these bacteria live in these specialized habitats. And that is the reason why uh, if you're growing soybeans, you don't necessarily have to add any additional nitrogen fertilizer because these bacteria do it. The challenge, though, is when you get to cereal crops like uh, corn or, or wheat or its relatives, they don't have this specialized symbiotic relationship. Instead, though, um, these plants uh, can host you know, relatives of what exists in legumes. Uh, and we the, these these microbes can exist inside the plant or on the root surface, typically. And the reaction is the same. They convert atmospheric nitrogen gas into ammonia, and then the ammonia goes into producing protein and chlorophyll and all the good stuff required for plant growth. Years ago, this was always considered kind of pie in the sky, that for corn and wheat, we could get these bacteria to work. But in the last few years in particular, there have been significant advances in discovering bacteria that can do this process. And so we're getting to the point now that at least under good conditions, these bacteria can supply about 25% of 
of the nitrogen requirement of, of certainly corn and wheat. The challenge is it's not often, you know, stable. Uh, what I mean by that is it works well in some crop varieties, maybe not as well in other crop varieties, works well in some environments, not well as well as in other environments. So that's this next challenge that has to be overcome and will likely be overcome by breeding. Uh, one can breed the microbes, maybe even breed the crops. Right. So this is really fascinating. I mean, I think most people listening who are farmers and most listeners will be farmers, like, fully understand the symbiotic relationship between between legumes and certain nitrogen-fixing bacteria. But in the case of, of, of trying to develop uh, or better understand how we could encourage these types of bacteria to work with cereal crops, where was the challenge? Was it in finding the bacteria that could do that? Is it in, did we already know where they were, but we needed to figure out how to encourage them to work with certain crops like what what were the what what were or are the challenges and and where and can you clarify again i think you touched on it but where are they coming from like where where mm -hmm. where are we looking for them so um so some of the challenges were just in the in the discovery of these microbes so my own lab uh, at the university of guelph we've been looking at this since 2007 and in our case, it, it took looking at ancient wild and wild relatives of corn. Um, you know, indigenous peoples around the world, uh, in some cases, have been able to grow crops with without adding um, a lot of fertilizer. I mean, obviously, they'll use farmyard manure. Um, but it's sometimes looking at some of these more traditional practices and, and then systematically working through some of these systems and asking, are there any microbes that are contributing to their sustainability? And, and in our case, some of our mic microbes that have turned out to be promising came from you know, this type of research. Sometimes it's looking at um, interesting plant tissues uh, that people haven't investigated before for, for microbes that might live inside them. So the discovery here um, is part of it. Um, there are some startup companies. In their case, um, what they've done is they have selected four microbes to, let's say, be able to colonize the plant. Um, so there's one company where what their key innovation was, and it's, it's non-GMO, but their key innovation was selecting for a microbe that will produce enzymes to degrade the outer cell wall so that it can actually get inside the plant. There's another startup where they have used a technique called gene editing. It's not GMO, but they've used a, a an approach where you can target mutations at a specific location in a bacteria. And in their case, what, what the real innovation was, um, was the challenge with nitrogen-fixing bacteria is they stop nitrogen fixation. So they stop the conversion of atmospheric nitrogen gas to ammonia when there's sufficient nitrogen in the soil. Their key innovation was knocking out that feedback mechanism so that the bacteria continue to fix nitrogen even if there is a certain level of nitrogen in the soil. And that's a really nice innovation. And that, that has been known for some time, but they, they actually applied it to, to a bacteria that otherwise you know, had showed potential for corn. So, and, and you know, the other factor really is just um, there's been a, a real revolution 
um, in microbiome research. So the microbes that live inside plants, humans, etc. There's been just a revolution, and, and that was made available through advances in the technology to um, to look at um, what is in the community um, within an organism, what's in the microbial community that lives inside the organism. So, you know, it's those advances that now unleashed us being able to, you know, look at large numbers of microbes really quickly and characterize them. And corresponding with that, then, has been a lot of investment and interest now. And in the case of, of these crop microbes, it's this, um, you know, now this obviously idea that climate change is happening, uh, the climate emergency is here. We have to reduce the carbon footprint um, in agriculture. And when synthetic nitrogen fertilizers are added, there's, you know, at least two, at least three, two or three things that are problematic when it comes to climate change. One is that, as I said earlier, just producing um, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer requires burning fossil fuels. So the second part, though, is that when you add nitrogen fertilizer to crops, let's say corn, only about 50% is taken up. The rest of that is is lost to the environment. And a subset of that is actually uh, lost as nitrous oxide, which is a potent greenhouse gas. So knowing that these are problematic, then there's been interest and, and investment in these microbes, which can bypass actually both issues and, and something that I hope we can talk about further. I think we will. I, I think you've been over this, except I need it doesn't it doesn't hurt just to make sure we have the right vocabulary. Can can you know in read in preparing for the interview, I saw references to endophytes a, fa- a couple yeah. of times, and I'm wondering, can you clarify or can you tell us what are endophytes and and you know what role do they play in terms of what you've just described? Sure. So um, endophytes are microbes that live inside plants. They can live inside the shoot, inside the root, any tissue. Endo means inside, inside and phyte means plant. There are also microbes that live on the surfaces of plants, um, and we call those epiphytes. Uh, epi means on top of. And then um, the epiphytes can include a large number of microbes that live on the root surface inside the soil and just around the root, and those are rhizosphere microbes. Biofertilizers, or, or any, any group of functional microbes that help, the, help crop plants, can live inside the plant, on the surface of plants, or in the rhizosphere. Um, the, the key thing is, for, for a nitrogen biofertilizer to work, the, the chemical reaction of converting atmospheric nitrogen gas into ammonia, the building block of, of all, you know, of, of protein and chlorophyll, that requires a lot of energy, and that energy ultimately has to come from photosynthesis, uh, which is, and, and that energy is converted into sugars, and it's the sugars that feed these bacteria. So these nitrogen-fixing bacteria have to be located in a place that the plant is giving off a lot of sugar. That can happen. That certainly happens in the rhizosphere. On average, 30% of the of the photosynthesis sugar produced by a plant is secreted by roots into the rhizosphere. Um, and so one of the startup companies, their bacteria actually live around the root system in the rhizosphere. Um, in other cases, though, there's a lot of sugar coursing through the veins of a plant um, in its vascular system. And so some of these bacteria are, are, can be located um, around, around the vascular system, uh, and that could be in the stems, roots, or leaves. Um, 
So, uh, but but yes, um, endophytic microbes certainly some of those are nitrogen fixing microbes. Right. Okay. So we're gonna keep we're gonna keep kind of parsing this topic, but I think I think we should bring in you know I, I should ask you to to talk about the the Rizata Lab at University of Guelph and just explain you know how your work re- relates to this topic currently. Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. So, um, you know, my lab has been. We've spent about 15 years trying to discover and screen through microbes that could reduce the amount of nitrogen fertilizer in corn, in wheat, and also in turf grasses that are on your front lawn or residential properties, because that that also consumes a lot of nitrogen fertilizer. And, uh, you know, we've taken just a very systematic approach. First, we see, you know, can, can any bacteria survive? you know, in a Petri dish without adding nitrogen fertilizer, then that provides us a clue. Uh, then we take those, we make sure we, not all bacteria are safe. You know, some obviously can cause crop disease, some can cause human or livestock disease. So we basically throw away probably 80, 90% of our bacteria because we're, we're concerned there, there may be uh, unsafe or we don't even want the suspicion that they could be unsafe. And then we, we actually sequence the entire genome of those bacteria to make sure there is nothing there that looks unsafe to us. Uh, then we test them to make sure they're not resistant to antibiotics, just in case for some reason someone does get sick, that there's treatments for them. Um, then we look at some international standards to see what are safe bacteria based on what species they belong to. The point is we do a lot of safety testing. That's actually what holds up the research, but it's critical. So before we do anything beyond, you know, beyond a Petri dish, we make sure we have something that's safe. Then we go and we uh, we take the safe ones. We we have to apply for permits, and then we go into greenhouse trials and eventually field trials, where we grow the crops under low nitrogen conditions, and and see if any of them ultimately boost yield. And then we know we have something that's winning. But then we, uh, I think what, what what we are doing that's that's really quite innovative and novel, is is that we're our final step is that we breed these microbes. So we breed them to be more stable under um, different environmental fluctuation conditions, different soil types, uh, different crop varieties. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, the challenge we have with um, microbes, whether they're microbes, uh, biofertilizers or biopesticides, biofungicides, is that their activity is patchy, unstable less reliable than, than other, other means. And so we're taking lessons from, you know, um, crop breeders, uh, crop breeders spend years, um, just breeding to make sure that they, that, that farmers will have stable yields in different seasons or environments. And so we're taking that same approach to microbes and for any one microbe, it takes about a year to do that. Um, but I think at the end, uh, we're hoping, we, we haven't gone into field trials with our bread microbes yet. That's the next step. We're hoping that the bread microbes now will be much more stable and useful for farmers. So as you were saying that, it had me thinking about an analogy. I mean, essentially what you were describing is that when we add a synthetic fertilizer, I think we can control conditions a little better. I mean, we all know the problems with loss of, of, of fertilizer into the atmosphere as emissions or, or, you know, into the water table as nitrates movement, right? But, um, but we, to, to an extent, we have more control 
uh, and it, it just had me. It just reminded me of of we're going to talk about pesticides later. And I mean, say using a pesticide on a plant versus bringing in ladybugs to do your predation. You you don't have as much control. You can put the ladybugs in the system, but but there's there's much less control over you know keeping them there. Uh, and and it seems like there's an analogy with using these microbes or trying to use these microbes to um, fertilize your plants. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you have to remember that a microbe is a living organism. And um, it's going to it's going to behave differently at different temperatures, different levels of moisture in the soil, and it's going to react also to the other organisms around it. And um, that microbe also will behave differently with different crop varieties, given its genetics, because they actually send signals back and forth to say, "Hey, are you a friend or are you an enemy?" This is a plant to affect to a microbe. And some crop varieties will actually recommend, will, will recognize a biofertilizer more as an enemy rather than a friend and will stop it. So, so you know, um, there's advantages and disadvantages, and, and that's the inherent disadvantage of a living organism. The advantage, though, of course, um, is potentially on the environmental side as well as on the cost side. So microbes are very inexpensive. One can produce a huge batch of microbes uh, for for a very small cost. And, you know, you can coat them onto seeds or spray them onto soil or on the plant. And the plant's sugars themselves will feed the bacteria and cause them to multiply. And so you don't need to necessarily add much bacteria. In fact, if you add too much, you might actually turn on the the defense response of a plant so that it, it kind of shuts down the bacteria, thinking it's a pathogen. So cost potentially can be quite low. The other advantage, though, is on the environmental side. And I, I touched on this earlier, but if I could elaborate further, you know, uh, when you add nitrogen fertilizer, you're getting a lot of it is lost in, into leaching or into the atmosphere. And that's because it's added on the outside of the plant. And it's typically added, at least by conventional farmers, it's added often all at once, usually at the start of the growing season. And at that stage, plants are really small. They they don't have much demand for nitrogen fertilizer and their root systems are, are small. So the, the plants don't take them up and, and that's why you get such large losses um, at the start of the growing season. A microbe, on the other hand, has two advantages. One is that if that microbe persists throughout the growing season, then it can supply nitrogen as the plant grows. In the case of corn, at least half of the nitrogen that's required is during the time that the grain is being produced. We call that the grain fill period. If uh, um, and, and, and the challenge is sometimes farmers actually suffer from kind of uh, lower yields because late by, by the time, um, um, you know, plants are at that stage, a lot of the nitrogen has already been lost from the soil. Microbes, however, if they continue to pump out nitrogen late in the growing season, it can, it can really boost yields. So that's one big advantage. The second advantage is these microbes are not secreting out nitrogen into the soil because they're colonizing in the plant either right on the root surface or inside the plant itself. So there's no opportunity for that nitrogen to be lost into either groundwater or into the atmosphere. So those are some very significant advantages. Manish, I, I really want to I want to ask you that then about the potential for these um, for these microbes. to. Hey everyone, 
I'm cutting in real quick to let you know about some upcoming Organic BC events to put in your calendar. It's January of 2023 as I record this, and by now hopefully many of you know that our annual Organic Conference will be held in November this year, not February. So, to tide you over until then, Organic BC has organized a few gatherings so that we don't have to wait so long to see each other. First, the online events. On Thursday, February 2nd, I will be hosting our second annual beer night on a Zoom call starting at 7pm. This is just going to be a silly social event that was really fun last year, so I hope you'll join us. On Thursday, February 23rd, Organic BC is hosting an online session on principles of rotational grazing, also starting at 7 p.m. There are also some regional in-person gatherings coming up in Nelson, Kelowna, Vancouver Island, and Quesnel through the month of February. To learn about all those events, head to organicbc.org events, where info will be up soon, if not already. Okay, back to my conversation with Manish Raizada. Manish, I, I really want to I want to ask you that then about the potential for these um, for these microbes to to aid us with fertilization ultimately. But I, I, I don't think we're there yet. I, I I'm still a bit I still have more curiosity or I'm a bit confused about how this science develops. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to try and and ask you to take us through major stages of the development. So my if that's OK with you. So for sure, my first question is. So it, it seems like the first project was to uh, we had to go and find potential candidates, right, to 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 serve these roles. And I'm wondering, like, so we're we're going in nature and looking for for bacteria that could serve this role. So my first question is, is that is it a matter of like, are there were there thought to be, or do we understand there to be tens of of species, or or hundreds or thousands? Like, what what were the kind of numbers we were working with? You mentioned before you had to weed out species that just wouldn't work. But what what was the starting <laughs> You know what? What? What is the? How many species are we talking about? Well, I, I can only speak to my lab, and so in, in the case of my lab, we are looking at between hundreds and thousands. So um, we started with a few hundred. Eventually, we screened through about two and a half thousand microbes. Um, but but the key thing is not necessarily the numbers; it's exactly where were we looking. Um, so I think that was what was critical. Where, what was the source of these microbes? Um, and so in, in our case, one of the things I think our, my lab has contributed to is just, just demonstrating the value of looking at the wild relatives of, of our modern crops. You know, we've been breeding or selecting or we, we domesticated most of our crops in the last 10,000 years. So... It, it might be because we're not selecting for crops to grow under low nitrogen conditions. Most breeding happens under high nitrogen conditions. So it might be that we've lost some of these microbes. Well, well my lab has shown that corn has lost about 50, at least 50% of its natural microbes. So the microbes that exist in its, its original wild relative. Um, and so I think looking at that pool of these lost microbes has really been very useful in our case. Um, as I said, in, in the case of some of the companies, they've done some further um, developments of microbes that actually have been known for a long time, um, but, but they realized what some of the bottlenecks were, and so then they altered it. You know, sometimes what happens is, um, like around 2007, 2008, there was a lot of interest in the work that we were doing. We had just started doing it, or let's say 2009. And that's because oil natural gas prices had increased at that point. Then when oil natural gas prices, and so hence fertilizer prices had increased. When fertilizer prices start, stopped, you know, went down again, 
you know, the interest in funding this type of research, whether it was government or, or industry, really dropped. Now, because of, of, of climate change, and also, again, because of oil and natural gas prices, we, we see this res- resurgence in interest, um, you know, here. You know, nitrogen fertilizer is actually quite cheap, no, normally. It, it is quite cheap. Um, and so um, I said microbes are cheap, but there is still a cost, and, and, and farmers have to apply it, and it's not as reliable. So what I'm getting at here is that the background global economics has played a role in all of this. You, you talked about having looked at thousands of, of potential organisms yourself. Is it in terms of like what's required for an organism to even be considered, they need to be able to, you know, they're, they're a nitrogen fixing organism. Um, mm-hmm. do, generally, are you looking for organisms? Like, is it generally the case that any, any organisms that emerge as a candidate were are found in nature in some uh, crop wild relative of the crop in question, or are we talking about getting or like uh, working, encouraging organisms to actually like jump to different plant families when, if we're going to apply them? Yeah. So it's a good question. Uh, so with some microbes, we like we and, and other laboratories around the world have shown that we can transfer microbes from, one one plant species to you know multiple plant species. Um, in in other cases, though, it, it it doesn't work, and it's right now very hard to predict. Um, it's it's very hard to to predict which microbes can be used across um, plant species, and and it gets worse than that. Um, as and I alluded to this earlier, and this is a and this is a challenge. Um, so you can have a microbe. Uh, let's say a biofertilizer that works in one variety of corn, you know, great, and then doesn't work at all in other varieties of corn, yet will work in wheat. And and we've looked at that in my lab to try to understand that better. The, the bottom, so we don't have a good answer yet, but the bottom line is it has to do with um, whether or not a, a particular crop variety views a microbe as a friend or as, as an enemy. Um, and and I, I want you to think about this in that, you know, when we add a microbe to a plant, that plant already has a microbiome. It already has hundreds or thousands of species in the rhizosphere, inside the plant, on the root surface. And so when you add a microbe, the you know, is that microbe going to be compatible with the existing microbiome? Is it going to displace the microbiome? For sure, the existing plant microbiome is going to try to compete with the microbe that you're adding. So that that is a significant part of this. And again, we're taking a breeding approach to that to make sure when we're adding a microbe that we're trying to make it compatible with the existing microbiome. That's likely what we're what we're doing. So that we're actually working with the existing um, I guess the existing nature, uh, you know, rather than trying to displace it. And can you can you give one like one of the better examples of success, even if it's with a specific variety of a specific crop? Like I'm thinking of as we because I just want to talk now about potential and commercialization and application. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so yeah, can you can you give an example of your work or someone else's in terms of 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 one of these developments or technologies that is 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 working pretty well. So there are um, there are probably three startup companies. Um, 
um, that are that are selling products for for corn and and wheat as well. One of these startups is called Azotic, and they sell a bacteria called Envita, and they're nitrogen fixing bacteria. And it's for for actually diversity of crops, corn, wheat, and and other crops. Um, they claim on average. Um, it reduces the nitrogen requirement for for corn and wheat by about about 25%. Um, I have been able to look at some independent field trials um, um, across the U.S. Midwest, um, in particular, and 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 what the data shows is, in some cases, um, there's uh, actually the uh, reduced nitrogen the, the reduction nitrogen has been even 30 40%. Um, now, in other cases, though, so in some varieties, in some environments, there's no benefit whatsoever. And I have also seen situations from there's unfortunately limited amount of third-party data available, where with some of these biofertilizers, um, there's actually been a reduction in yield. Um, but on average, across these field trials, it looks like about a 25% benefit. So, you know, what that means is, um, you know, if a farmer wishes to adopt uh, adopt any of these, um, they should just try it out first. They should try it out with their particular crop variety under their particular soil and environment. So just take a small parcel of land and um, and just check the yield on it and and see are you are you getting a benefit or not i i would maybe do that for two years so that you have two different seasons to 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 compare and if you see a benefit great you know then then add this microbe on a larger scale if you don't then you haven't lost too much um now these startup companies all call them first generation microbes because they've not truly been bred um um, and i so i think we're going to see you know, similar to what you know we're seeing in my lab, I think in the in the next five years, ten years maybe, we're going to see these second generation mark microbes come to the market, um, where the microbes have been bred in an ideal situation. What I hope will happen is that seed companies um, will actually be, um, you know, co-breeding both their seed variety. And the microbe to be really compatible um, under different environments, so that any seed variety that's released is released with a microbe, maybe even coated onto that seed, or at least a recommendation you can use this particular strain of microbe, and that we predict that it will work well. And I, I think that's where this whole biofertilizer industry or biopesticide industry has to go. And if it does go that way, this is a bit of a tangent, but I can't help but ask. Earlier, you mentioned one potential benefit of this technology being how cheap it could be. But your last your last answer to me suggests that this could quickly become gatekept and intellectual property. And does it does it does it create the potential for seed and the accompanying biofertilizer that comes, you know, specialized with it to be very expensive and kept behind, you know, intellectual property gates? Much, much like yeah. much like GMO seed is currently. Yeah, yeah, there, there certainly is that danger. Um, you know, to be honest about it, um, look, some of this research is not is not cheap. Um, you know, just doing all the the safety testing and uh, and the breeding isn't cheap. It's not certainly not. It's certainly much much cheaper than breeding a seed variety. 
um, you know, magnitudes cheaper. But uh, there is a cost. Um, I I think ultimately, though, what will save on the cost is if it's not cheaper than synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, then this industry won't grow. There won't be there won't be a market for it. So I think just that fact will guarantee that that the prices of these microbes have to be kept to a reasonable level. Ideally, the microbes can just be coated onto seed. That that would keep the, the you know the the application cost you know really low, um, and and ensure that ultimately this technology is very inexpensive. If but the challenge with some of these microbes, and, and again I, I just want to be honest about all of this, is that there are some types of microbes that, um, and it's hard to predict in advance, they just don't work well with seed coating like they don't get inside the plant if they're in the case of endophytes. So some of these microbes work best if you actually spray a seedling. Others work best if you spray the soil. You know, that those will, will just bring up the costs, uh, you know, and labor um, after a farmer purchases the microbes and just the quantity a farmer needs, which again brings up the cost. There is something else which will limit this industry, which is that um, there are some microbes where you they don't need to be refrigerated, um, you know, during transport or once they're on the farm. Um, those microbes produce spores. Um, so, you know, farmers, uh, especially organic farmers, may know about you know certain beneficial fungi, and many fungi produce spores. So you can you can buy them in a, in a dry format, and they don't need refrigeration typically. There are some bacteria that can do that as well, including potentially some nitrogen-fixing bacteria, but most are not spore forming. Most require a cold chain. They require refrigeration. And that is problematic. Um, And if you don't refrigerate them, they'll lose activity. Now, there are some additives now that will stabilize some of those microbes, and including ones now that are being sold for soybean in the case of rhizobia bacteria. So there are some advances there. but but this is overall a challenge, um, you know, distribution, um, distribution without refrigeration, um, getting everything just right so that when you apply it, you know, you, you have some, you have really viable bacteria. Manish, I wanted to close out the topic of biofertilizers with two more questions. One was on the potential of, of these biofertilizers and one was related to climate change. But I think I'm going to combine them. So in the last year, the federal government announced its intention uh, by 2030 to reduce emissions from nitrogen fertilizer use by 30 percent, 30 percent by 2030. And this has been very contentious in Canada among many farmers who are concerned that those those goals are too high. And despite the federal government insisting that it's going to be all based on education and voluntary efforts, farmers are concerned they're going to be forced to severely cut their fertilizer use. All of this is pretty relevant to your work. So I'm just wondering, you know, I've read the discussion paper that the federal government produced uh, out of out of uh, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and they really spend a lot of time talking about the role of technologies like these biofertilizers to help us reduce these emissions. And the, the emissions from nitrogen fertilizers are, are three, up to 300 times more potent as far as trapping heat than, than CO2. 
Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts, if you're willing to wade into the political end of this a bit, I'm just wondering what you've been thinking as these announcements were, were made and if you can comment on the potential for these the, these microbes, these, this technology to, to help reach these ambitious targets. So I think, as you pointed out, absolutely, we, we need to, you know, reduce the impact that farming has on, on climate change. Um, and, and there are some opportunities, um, you know, to do that through um, altering the timing that nitrogen fertilizer is added, um, you know, use of better crop rotations, including use of legume, um, um, including use of legumes, also cover crops. I actually lead a large cover crops project at Guelph, as well as the use of um, nitrification inhibitors and, and other practices, splitting the nitrogen fertilizer dose. So all of those are, are realistic and possible. I think the challenge is that, you know, farming is prof- has to be profit-based and, and nitrogen is, 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 is an insurance policy for farmers to insure yields. Um, decent yields. And so I think to ask farmers to um, change a practice, try something new, which is, is which is great, um, I think that any risk has to be backstopped. Whether that risk is real or perceived, it doesn't matter. There has to be a program in place so that if a farmer does have, you know, a, a, a declining yields, that they don't have to absorb that risk. And some of these things uh, much of what I just talked about, it, it comes at a cost. And farmers, particularly grain farmers, are, are at the margins in terms of profit, as, as, as you and all your listeners know. And so I, I think um, these things, at least during an, an interim period, have to be subsidized. Um, so whatever the technology is, it has to be subsidized. And I think there has to be an incentive program, a stewardship program. Hey, you've tried this. You know, you've tried cover crops. Great. You should be paid for that. You know, um, with urban dwellers, right, there's an, an, a national subsidy program, $5,000 per electric vehicle. There's less than 300,000 farms left in Canada. And I think, um, you know, if we put in just a fraction of the investment that's going in to encourage people to switch to electric vehicles, um, to farming, and again, there's so few farmers left in Canada, then I think we could have real change. Um, so that's what I hope. That's what I hope you know, will happen. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I, I believe the federal government has not been serious about climate change. To be quite blunt, they've been late at the table, and you know, for seven years they really have not done much on the agricultural front. Now they've, you know, they've they've said they've got these targets. They announced them a couple of years ago. Now they're, you know, they've put them back on the table. And, and again, it's, I want, I want to, I want to see, you know, I have young kids. Um, I, I want us to have a, a better, better planet, a greener planet. Um, but I think that there needs to be direct cash on the table. They've put in, I believe, believe it's a $200 million fund. Um, I've written an editorial about this recently where I, where I've said we need a $10 billion fund for agriculture. And then I think we will see dramatic change. Um, and, and farmers, whether they're conventional organic farmers, I know they care about their soils, the environment, their children, more than anyone else in the world, quite frankly. And they don't need to be lectured to. But they, they need cash on the table to do this. 
that was not the answer I was expecting. And it was a really thought provoking answer. I'm glad I'm glad that I asked the question and that I asked you the question. Manish Razada, thank you so much for making the time for the conversation today. It has been really fascinating and illuminating. And I hope we can have you back on the show sometime in the future. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure for me. Thank you. One thing a lot of farmers are feeling lately is stress about extreme weather events that have become increasingly common the last number of years. For this season of the podcast, I called up some of my colleagues around the province to talk about how extreme weather has affected their farm and how they are attempting to adapt to what's starting to feel something like a new normal. For this episode, I spoke with Jeremy DeVries and his dairy farm near Grand Forks. Jeremy, just start by telling me um, your name and your, and your farm and what your farm does. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy DeVries, uh, Jerseyland Organics, and uh, we're uh, on-farm processor in Grand Forks, where we milk about 40, 45 cows and then process all that milk into cheese and yogurt and uh, other manufactured products. Jeremy, where you are farming, what weather-related stress are you most concerned will affect you in the future? And can you briefly explain why you're concerned? Sure. Yeah. So for, for us, it's heat. Uh, uh, um, in Grand Forks already, it's fairly hot and dry. And uh, what we've seen happen, especially with the cows, is with the extreme heat that we've seen the last couple of years, that we're, we're getting quite a bit of heat stress on the animals, as well as on our crop situations. Uh, we all are fully irrigated. Um, but even being fully irrigated, our, our soil is quite sandy. So, um, it, it's hard for us to keep up with the demand of the crops in these, in the high temperatures that we've seen in the last little, little while. And, uh, can you give me an example from the last two or three years of, of having to, to deal with some of this heat related distress, uh, an example about the animals or about your crops? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, either one. So uh, okay. So when we uh, two years ago, when we extreme, you know, when we had that extreme heat wave come through, uh, we ended up having to put misters out, uh, sprinklers out for the cows in the holding area before milking, just to keep them cool enough. Um, uh, in all the pastures that we have, there is sprinklers out there, so they are able to go under those. Um, but we're looking at trying to put in shade trees or, or other means of actually trying to keep these cows cool. Um, and then again, two years ago, not this last year, but with the cropping situation, we ended up having to buy feed out of Alberta, uh, which is kind of against what we're trying to do. We're trying to actually kind of build a whole cycle at Jersey land where we can just, where we can grow our own crops, spread all our own manure on our own cropland and create that cycle. Uh, and when we get the extreme weather like that, we're actually having to purchase crops, uh, to supplement our feed because you know, because our crops just aren't able to perform in those kind of conditions. Jeremy, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, no problem, Jordan. Anytime. All right. That's all for now, but we'll be releasing part two of my conversation with Manish Raizada very soon. That one will focus on biopesticides. 
Before I say goodbye, I want to acknowledge the support of the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food for the production of this episode, and to tell you that all the music we use in this podcast is courtesy of jazz flutist Matt Eckel. Thanks, Matt. Okay, it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>